0: Good afternoon. Welcome to week number six of our fall and winter series on the Acts Witnesses to the World. Uh, Today we're going to be uh, uh, talking about uh, the follow-up to what happened last, the last uh, time we were together, and that was uh, uh, the apostles had their first serious run-in with the Sanhedrin. Uh, they were issued a cease and desist order, not to mention the name of Jesus. Don't do any of the preaching that they had been doing, uh, and uh, literally keep your mouth shut. Uh, of course, the apostles were having none of that, uh, and said that they were going to obey God rather than men. And so we dropped off there last week. Uh, they went back to the upper room where they uh, gathered together with their friends and others who were there. Uh, they had a prayer. Uh, and that and in that prayer, they asked for God to give them confidence and give them strength uh, and, and uh Of course, God answered their prayer by shaking the floor, the very floor that they were uh, standing on. So today we're going to pick up there and we're going to be talking a little bit more about what happened after that in the short Term after that and then uh, some other things. Are, it seems like perhaps that Luke uh, digressed a little bit, but what he was trying to do was lay some groundwork for the early church and things that were going on there uh, and what it took to become sort of institutionalized in Jerusalem as, and as they were going forward from there. So before we get started, let me go ahead and, and open with prayer. Gracious Father, we do again give you thanks and give you glory for the fact that you uh, have made it possible for us to come together and to do these uh, lessons online. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We also thank you, Father, for the events of this past weekend where we had that uh, storm that came through. Uh, it wasn't as serious, and of, of course, uh, we never get as much as, as the folks that are down on the coast get, but at the same time, uh, from all reports, uh, there wasn't the, the loss of life or, the, or, or even the damage of property that has uh, occurred in others. And so we do glorify you for that, Father. We ask that you would be with those who are going to be in the, the recovery mode or continue in the recovery mode, even from the one that was passed through just several weeks ago and so father we ask that you would be merciful uh, that you would be graceful Uh, father that you would uh, uh, show your grace to those that are there and and would uh, enable them uh, to begin to recover uh, and that they might have the resources in order to do that Uh, today father we ask that you would be with us during this period of time that we're together and as we look again to your word that was brought to us by your uh, your apostle luke And and Father, as we look at that, we ask, O Lord, that you would reveal to us those things that you would have us know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, bring us up to date. Uh, In words of uh, today, the gospel had gone viral in Jerusalem. Now, I think I mentioned these these figures before, in talking about what the church was like before Pentecost and what the church was how it was growing after Pentecost. The gospel, of course, before the Pentecost, uh, there was there was some preaching of the word, if you will. The apostles were going around, certainly Jesus was traveling around. And so before Pentecost, there were approximately, and these these numbers come from Josephus, who uh, has become something of the official historian for uh, for Christianity there, certainly in the first century. But before Pentecost, there were approximately 500 believers uh, that were known of. After Pentecost, of course, in the immediate aftermath of Pentecost, on that first Sermon by uh, Peter. Uh, There were three thousand people who uh, who had committed themselves, who converted. uh, converted from Judaism to Christianity, if you will, uh, who through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ were added to the roles of the early church. So that 3,000. Then, of course, and as uh, uh, Peter and, and John were going back to uh, maybe a day later after the Pentecost experience, they were going back and they met the, the lame man at the gate, the gate called beautiful. Uh, and then after healing him and then having another sermon, they added another 5,000. Now, Josephus, while he admits that it's impossible to to give an accurate number of the total number of Christians in that early church, but after the first year, he estimated that there were approximately, counting those who were converted, both there in Jerusalem and also as they had gone back to their homes and so forth and included their family members, there were approximately 21,000 Christians. Uh, are people who had been committed to uh, following the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Of course, in comparison, again, I, I mentioned these numbers one time before, the Pharisees had about... 6,000 people that considered themselves to be official card carrying Pharisees and of course the Sadducees were a little bit less than that somewhere between 5 and 6,000 so already in that first year of the early church they, were, they outnumbered almost twice as many Christians as there were Pharisees and Sadducees almost twice as many even doubling uh, the total number of Pharisees and Sadducees so you can imagine that they were getting a little bit antsy uh, about what. they were going to employ in order to combat what they saw as an imminent threat. The Christian, those young believers on the other hand, were living as the end was near. Now let me draw your attention of of course to our readings today. We're starting at the 32nd verse in the fourth chapter verses 34 through 36 uh, sort of again sets the stage for uh, the follow-up of the young church there in Jerusalem. It says now, the 32nd verse says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. Now, that, that sort of, of course, describes the living arrangements, the, the the modus operandi for living as a Christian in those early years of the church. I, I, I was thinking this, this past week about... Uh, uh, how that differs from today. Uh, obviously, in the first century, the perspectives were very limited in terms of what the eschatology was going to be like or the, the, the discourse on end times. Uh, there, there certainly wasn't anything like there is today. In, in, in today's, uh, back then, of course, uh, they had almost firsthand knowledge of Jesus's ascension and, of course, what the angels said that Jesus was coming back and that he was coming back just as he had left, he would be coming back in the sky. And, of course, they didn't know the date But their assumption was that it was certainly not going to be in too distant a future. So as they begin to live as the body of Christ here, uh, they begin to live with the idea that his return was imminent. And so they lived in that way. Now in today's world, uh, we we talk about people who are involved in eschatology and who are sort of wrapped up in that stuff, and many people are, uh, and they consider themselves to be experts in all kinds of uh, eschatological perspectives. We have dispensationalists, we have the premillennialists, we have the amillennialists, and we have the postmillennialists, as well as several other different perspectives about what time, what life is going to be like, or what the world course of events are going to be like leading up to the return of Christ. I think inherent in all of those perspectives that we have today is the idea that oh oh, we got time we we, you know this this has to happen and that has to happen and something else is going to have to happen. We've got we're going to get plenty of notice. It's not going to be like Christ is just going to come uh, unexpectedly. Well certainly that's not what the Bible tells us. The the word says that, that he will come as a thief in the night. Uh, he's not going to announce his coming. Uh, he will come. the eastern sky will split, and Christ will uh, descend on a cloud just as he ascended uh, but But I think that, that, that many people today take some solace or perhaps some sense of security uh, as they latch themselves on to one of, uh, of the more of the modern uh, esk- to logical perspectives, and so, oh well, you know, this is going to happen, or these are going to. Israel's got to do this, or somebody's got to do that, or this is going to have to happen, and so forth. But uh, if I had to, if I had to, place my, uh, I guess, allegiance to a particular perspective, it would be much like the early church in and that, that is, is that nothing else has to happen. Uh, the only thing that has to happen is is that that God in Christ will decide that today is the day, uh, the the morning. This is the this is the day that I, that I'm going to be returning, and it's going to happen that day. Uh, we 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 may be sitting down here waiting for so and so to happen, but I I just don't think that that's the way it's going to be, and and I would. I would even certainly hope that that's not the way it's going to be I you know we we should always be ready uh, and we should always be investing ourselves heavily in the bride of Christ which is the church uh, just as they early as the early Christians were doing they invested everything in the church because that's what it that in fact is what God will ultimately be glorified through and that is through the the members of the the body of Christ and so uh, you know when we when we don't do that and, and and I think that most of us would would agree is that we don't do that we don't even come close to doing that uh, you know the way as they would as they were describing there in verse thirty two through thirty thirty five uh, uh, there may be a a random cult someplace at some time that may think that oh you know i've got an inside uh, lead on when Christ is coming again, so we're going to go ahead and do sort of follow the the um, the model that were set by the early Christians and we're going to have everything in common and we'll just take care of one another and we'll wait for the return of Christ. Well, certainly I don't think the church is, is very heavily involved today, at least the, the church uh, as we know it is involved in that today we, we we just have the idea that there's plenty of time uh and let's just go ahead and live life and and not be too concerned about those things because uh you know the experts in eschatology will will tell us when christ is going to come again and certainly even in today with this pandemic stuff that that we have going on there are a lot of people who are taking advantage of that trying to wrap the, their, their, their that into some sort of signal that that jesus is about to return again uh, I think that all of us need to keep in mind every day, Jesus is about to return. It may be tonight, it may be tomorrow night. All right, now, just after this in, in verse 36, it looks like just sort of a random verse that's thrown out there where Luke uh, introduces Barnabas. And in verse 36 he said, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, I, that was a something of a nickname for for uh, for for Joseph uh by the apostles which is translated son of encouragement a levite of the country of cyprus now you kind of wonder why why introduce him now well in the context of the scripture we'll find here is is that Luke is setting up sort of a a uh prototype as well as, you know, uh, this is the good that's in the church, this is the bad that's in the church. And if you look in the context of today's scripture, you'll see that Barnabas, Barnabas of course, was the prototype of what a young, uh, what a believer in the in the early church should have been like. Uh, he was, of course, he was called the son of exhortation, so you might imagine. He was the kind of guy that, that sort of cheered everybody on. He was the one that was dependable. He was there. Uh, he, he, he was someone who was always... Filled with the Spirit and wanting others to be filled with the Spirit too, he was a Levite, one of the seventy that Christ had sent out. Uh, and it, I think it was in well, it was Luke 10, uh, the first eight verses there. It, it talks about sending out this this group of missionaries, if you will, or apostles to different places within uh, uh, Jerusalem and, and elsewhere. He was called an apostle by Luke. Uh, he was also the cousin of John Mark and and his mother Mary. And he was also a friend to Paul. And we'll, we, we will read more, certainly as we, uh, in other scriptures and in Paul's letters, he mentions uh, his friend Barnabas who, who accompanied him on some of his missionary journeys. But the whole idea about introducing him here and then quickly leaving him and going to another subject uh, to bring up these next two characters that we're going to talk about, of course, is to show that, they, that the church has always been, from the very beginning and, and certainly in the present day, the church always has been, uh, if you will, contaminated by those who, who perhaps are not truly called to be a part of the body of Christ and who are, who are part of uh, those who are there for uh, other reasons, if you will, and some because uh, Satan has placed them there. The next few verses talks about the enemy within the church, and it's another one of these little stories that we, we read in scripture where when we first read it, we think, wow, Man, that's 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 taking the hardcore approach here. Let me start with uh, verse five. I mean, chapter five. And he Luke here introduces a husband and wife team who were uh, apparently fairly wealthy, probably middle class, if you will. And he says here, but a certain man named Ananias and with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. And, of course, that's what everybody was doing, those who, who felt called to be a part of the body there. They were selling their possessions and sharing it with others. They laid it at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles the apostles distributed as, as, as was the need uh, by the different members of the early church. So Ananias and his wife had some land. They sold some land. Didn't have to. Nobody told them they had to. But they went ahead and sold some land, and they brought the... Uh, Results of that sale to the apostles, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it, and he brought a certain part and held it at the apostles' feet and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, "Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself?" Well, I I think that that many of us, and and certainly I did when I when I first read this verse. But well, you, you know. I would think that most anybody would do that you know it's sort of okay we sold the the land for so much let's give let's give to the church you know a a generous amount and hold back others not not that we uh, were obligated to give any of it to Uh, nobody said we had to sell the land and give it to the church So we sold the land we took most of it and gave it to the church and we kept the rest for ourselves And of course, that's the implication that you get here, is that that's what they did. But Peter saw more in it than just that. He says, while it remained, verse 4, he says, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this in thy heart? You've You've not lied to men, but to God. And what he's saying is that you knew you were you were going to make out like that you had sold it and you were giving it all to God, if you will. By giving it to us, you were giving ultimately giving it to God. But you not only kept some back, but then you let you you led us to believe that it was all, that we were getting it all to distribute. So you lied not only to us, but you also lied to the Holy Spirit, and ultimately you lied to God. And of course, he goes on here to say. Then verse 5, he says, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. And so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose, and they took his body, wrapped him up. They carried him out, and they buried him. About three hours later, as they were having service, uh, his wife comes back. She shows up. Don't know where she was, but she shows up about three hours after Ananias has dropped dead, or God has, has struck him dead. And his wife shows up, and of course Peter confronts her in the midst of the church service. Peter confronts her, and he says, "Uh, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much money. And she said, Yes, for so much money. And Peter, of course, knew right away that she had lied. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men carried her out and found her dead and carry, found her dead. And carrying her out, they buried her by her husband. And so a great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And don't you know it? Uh, that, that was the way church discipline was applied in the early church. And as it says here, all who heard these things great had great fear. Uh, it's sort of uh, ludicrous for us to think about. You know, if church discipline was applied in the same way today, how many people would be struck dead? It, you, 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 certainly, certainly a lot more than COVID has killed. So. But but that was the, that's that's something that uh, uh, Luke thought was important for the early church to to uh, to not only know, and so he included that in the in the word that he was sharing as a part of the gospel message here in Acts. Is that this is important thing? You've got you've got someone like Barnabas who is the prototype of the perfect young Christian, if you will, and then you've got Ananias and Sapphira who are not. Those were the enemy within the church who were deceiving the church and by uh, deceiving the leaders of the church as well as deceiving the Holy Spirit as well as deceiving God him, himself. And so one of the things that, one of the important lessons there from, from Luke's perspective was the progressive nature of sin. When we sin against somebody, there's always a cumulative effect there in terms of the progression. If, if, we, if we lie to the, to the church here, whether you know, it has to do with something that we've we've said we're going to do and we don't do it uh... then there's a, a cumulative if you, or you a uh... i guess an echo effect of how that translates itself into other parts of perhaps a ministry and of course the other important lesson there is once we have and, and, and of course that speaks to why it's important that you have strict church discipline is because uh... Purging sin from the ecclesia, which is obviously is the word for the assembly, it's for the congregation, for for the body. There, purging sin from the body does not help, but to bless that body and 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 gives it strength uh, in its witness. And it says there in verse twelve of the of the fifth chapter, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all in one accord in Solomon's porch. And so it, it, it had a. a a magnifying effect on the body because they, of course, had a new appreciation for, ha- for having a fear of the Lord and certainly had an appreciation for that's not something you, you do not want to do is to, uh, to deceive those who are in leadership as well as, you know, the cumulative effect of that or the progressive effect of that. Uh, if we, we lie to uh, the church leadership, then we lie to uh, the Holy Spirit. And if we die to the Holy Spirit, we ultimately are lying uh, to, to God. And so those were some lessons that came out of this. And as the, as the word says, it had a very strong effect on that early church verse 14 says that uh, believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they brought the sick out into the streets and they laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them well that's that's an uh, an interesting observation by Luke there is that even Peter's, when Peter walked by them, even if his shadow touched one of them, it had the power to heal them. And and certainly they had faith in that that being the case. And I'm sure it was the case, although specific instances are not mentioned here. Verse 16 says, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, that, that sort of brings us, he, he finishes with the, uh, talking about church discipline and the effects of church discipline. He talks about the prototype of, of what a Christian ought to be like and so forth. Then he gets back to talking about the external opposition. He talked about the internal opposition. Now he's going to talk about the external opposition. Of course, that brings up the in chapter 5 in the 27th verse, or in the 17th verse, He said, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Well, the indignation was, of course, that there was so much power being uh, displayed by the apostles who had been filled with the the power of the Holy Spirit that just about they were doing miracles uh, literally left and right. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were, were indignant about that. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. That was their response. You know, they had told them not to preach, cease and desist. Don't say his name, don't heal in his name, don't preach about his name, and and, uh, uh, just keep your mouth shut about this man, Jesus. And they did, obviously they didn't. And so the Sadducees came to them, had them arrested, put in the common prison. But that night, uh, an angel came and released them from the prison. Of course, what did the apostles do? They went right back to the temple and started preaching again and healing again the next morning of course the Sanhedrin had no idea what took place the, the previous night so the Sanhedrin got together again uh, and they were going to try and determine what strategy they needed to employ to nip this movement in the bud and it was while they were while they were doing that they said well go go to the prison and get them and bring them back here and we'll you know we'll decide what we're going to do to them Well, they went to the prison and obviously the apostles were not there. In the meantime, word comes to them, the apostles are someplace else in the temple and that they're doing what they were explicitly told not to do and for the the same thing uh, that had happened before, they were told not to. So anyway, Peter again preaches the kind of sermon which he had previously preached on two occasions and that was his witness in verse 27 through 32. He says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them this, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And the God of your father, of our fathers, has raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And him God has exalted in his right hand and the prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses. And of course, the Sadducees, uh, when, when they heard Peter repeat all of the same allegations, all of the same uh, condemnation, if you will, of the of the leadership, both the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, uh of, of course, there was an immense amount of anger that came out immediately, and they called for an immediate execution. Uh, the, the, the Sadducees wanted them to be immediately apprehended and um, and then immediately executed. And the only thing that prevented that from happening was Gamaliel, Gamma who most of you will remember was the was the uh, mentor to Saul of Tarsus or to the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was a teacher of the Jews, which meant he was the sort of the leading rabbinical teacher of, of uh, scripture to the Jews. And he was there. Uh, and he intervened in the proceedings there. And what he told them was, whoa, 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 you know, don't, don't be too hasty here. Uh, let me... Okay, I want to to start reading here about... uh, 34. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Send, Send them outside and let's talk about this. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves with what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him, he also perished, and all who obeyed him were also dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or or, or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. Let, let, let them alone. Let them do what they're doing. And, of course, if, if God is in it, as he says in verse 4, and they agreed with him, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and he let them go again. So what, what Gamal did, he offered them a new strategy for dealing with the Jews and, or, or the new Christians in Jerusalem. Now, this didn't apply outside of Jerusalem, as we'll see later on as we look at some of the other apostles and even the deacons, talking about Stephen and, and Philip, uh, But Gamal's strategy was, leave them alone. If if what they say is the truth, then you can't do anything about it. And and right now it looks like what they're saying is the truth because everybody's witnessed it. They've got the people behind them in this. And so we need to let them alone. If it ultimately doesn't, if it's not the truth, then that that will be borne out in the actions in the coming days, and the weeks and months and so forth. But rather than alienating the people, rather than uh, antagonizing the people who do believe now in this movement, uh, it's best that you just keep a low profile and let them go about doing what they're doing and let God ultimately decide whether they are of God or not of God. And so they called them back in. They, They agreed, okay, well, we'll try that. And so they called them back in and told them that they would receive 39 lashes. They would be... Scourged, if you will, like Christ was. And the common penalty for for lashes was to, to receive one less than the maximum number which was 40 they would all receive 39 lashes and anybody who of course was not able to physically stand 39 lashes uh could in fact be given some uh some dispensation there and get less than 39 if they if perhaps if they passed out or if if in some other way it was shown that you know further lashes would would perhaps kill them or something uh they would get less than 39 but but all the apostles According to to Josephus, all the apostles received 39 lashes and again were given the cease and desist order. I told we so like we told you last time, don't go out there and start preaching again or else. They didn't define what else was. Of course, the apostles were not terribly impressed by the punishment, nor were they impressed by the cease and desist order. So they were released, they rejoiced, they went back again and started preaching with renewed zeal in the temple. And so that brings us up to the conclusion for today. Now, there are a number of conclusions that we could draw from this, but the one that I wanted to uh, perhaps just mention uh, is the one that is most, uh, to me anyway, is the most apparent or the most uh, pressing, if you will. As we said, they were warned, cease and desist. Don't do this. Um, And of course... We in our current history, uh, the church has literally been given some cease and desist orders uh, in the first century there. And and uh, of course, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin uh, and those who were opposed to Christ were giving cease and desist, giving cease and desist orders to the apostles because they did not want to promote this new movement, this faith in Jesus Christ. And so they were they were afraid of it, if you will. And so they said, no more. Now, in today's world, uh, we have, the church has, specifically, along with the rest of the world, uh, been given cease and desist orders. I, and I bring up the church only because that's that's what we're talking about here, is the body of Christ and the leadership of the body of Christ. And we know that, that uh, churches have been forbidden from coming together to worship, in, in certain ways and in, which is common to uh, to the church and to the liturgy within the church. Uh, they've been told that they can't sing, they've been told that they can't have so many people in the church at one time, they've been told uh, any number of things or restrictions that must be applied to them uh, in order to worship. And it has in fact for the most part with very few exceptions, it in most part has, has really put a damper on the, the uh, manifestation of Christian worship in the United States since at least April of this 2020. I, I would like to say that that it's a short-term thing however it appears as though there, that there are few people. There, there, there's one shining example, and this is not the only example, but it's one shining example to, of our exception to that, and that is by John MacArthur's church out in uh, Los Angeles, California, in Los Angeles County, uh, a church of better than 6,000 people uh, who has, had suspended worship for uh, in-house worship for only a, a couple of weeks while they looked at what was happening in the pandemic, uh, then they decided that based upon all of the statistics that were coming in around uh, the people infected, the, the number of deaths, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that the numbers did not jive with what was being disseminated through the World Health Organization and through the, the uh, Center for Disease Control and state governments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so John MacArthur uh, let it be known that if anybody wanted to come to church, he would be there every Sunday and he would be preaching the gospel. And he did so. And about the third week after they had suspended services, people started coming back. They started coming back without masks. They started coming back without social distancing. And they started coming back by the hundreds. Until uh, probably a month ago, they were back at their normal Sunday worship with about somewhere between three and 5,000 people in church. The auditorium was packed. Of course, the county tried to do everything that they thought they could do in order to, again, stymie that, telling them that they couldn't do that. But John MacArthur and the leadership of that church there has stood very firmly uh, in saying that uh, that the, the, the government, at whatever level, uh, is beyond their bounds when, in terms of the Constitution when they try to limit, uh, limit or restrict or characterize worship as only being able to be expressed or manifest in a particular way. Uh, he has stood firmly. And I would like to say that others have been steadily joining him in that regard, but I would be exaggerating if, the, if I said that. They have not. And even John MacArthur has said that he is very disappointed in the the church in the United States, uh, in that they have uh, been very reluctant to take back control uh, and to express their constitutional rights to have worship uh, as they see fit, not as the government tells them that they might have worship. So, and and that's of course the the lesson here for us, I think, is that sometimes uh, what the government wants you to do and tells you to do uh, like it was with the, the, the first century with the apostles, they were telling them to do something which was strictly against Scripture, strictly against what God had, had ordained that they do. And so the apostles knew that. Uh, they weren't going to stand for that regardless of what the consequences may do, may be. Uh, uh, of course, that's, that's not what we're doing today, and I, and I, I, I lament that. Uh, I'm sorry that that's the case, but I think it's uh, there might be a very important lesson for the church to learn in all of this, is that sometimes when you acquiesce, uh, sometimes when you roll over and, and su- subjugate yourself to the state, uh, you'll find out that you don't have, that, that freedom will be gone, and it will be gone forever. And so uh, I'm... I, I, I applaud and, and, and continue to pray for John MacArthur and the, and the membership at, at uh, Grace Church out in Los Angeles County and pray that other churches would have a similar uh, sense of commitment to their calling in the Lord Jesus Christ and also uh, to what God has ordained that they do in terms of worship uh, to Him. Alright, that's all for today. Next week we're going to talk about one of the, uh, or the uh, again one of those infrastructure things where the church because of its uh, intense gro- uh, growth or short term growth uh, found that they couldn't handle all the problems that were cropping up and so they began to appoint deacons and next week we're going to be talking about the witness of the one of the first two deacons that were appointed. Uh, the first one would be Stephen uh, and then the, in the following week after that we'll talk about the the ministry of Philip, they, while they were uh, appointed as deacons, they were more evangelists than they were deacons. Uh, I, it should be very interesting, so I look forward to that. Let me close. Gracious Father, uh, we, we know that we've been called for a purpose. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that we would be constantly, continually, urgently exhorted to fulfill our purpose and our calling. And Father, we know that, that sometimes it's, it's easy uh, for us to say, well, okay, well, you know, there, this, there's this consideration and there's that consideration and there's this equivocation and there's that equivocation and, and perhaps we need to be more cautious and be more uh, discretionary in what we do and so forth. And Father, your word tells us and the examples of your apostles show us uh, that, that our calling supersedes all other callings whether it's a calling to family whether it's a calling to vocation whether it's a calling to uh, to common sense whether it's a calling to uh, to our uh, standing in the community is what we have been called to do as a part of the body of Christ far exceeds and far transcends these temporary callings are, 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 are that we that uh, we we receive here in um, the community the state and the nation is a large. We just ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us a new a new sense of seriousness about what you've called us to do in Christ Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. <laughs>